Well, we are in the book of Genesis again today. We're in a series in the book of Genesis, that first book of the Bible. It's a book which contains stories of beginnings, the beginnings of Israel, and before that, the beginning of creation and humanity. And that's where we still are. Today we come to the creation of the woman and the union of Adam and Eve in Genesis 2. It's the story of the first marriage. I don't know what comes to mind for you when you hear that word marriage, when you think about marriage. Maybe you think of that classic line from the princess bride. Marriage is what brings us together today. Or more seriously, I thought of different responses to the thought of marriage. For those engaged to be married or newly married, the thought of marriage is mostly bliss. For some, the reaction is one of longing. They would love to be married someday if only the right guy or girl would come along. For others, there's a sense of regret. They are married, but wish that they weren't married to the person that they're married to. Some are not currently married due to the painful experience of a death of their spouse or divorce. And others might wince hearing the word marriage, especially in an evangelical church as a preacher is getting up to preach. Perhaps you wonder, does he have an archaic, weird view of gender, sexuality, and marriage? And still others... Perhaps the counterpart to that last category I mentioned would be those culture warriors who get excited about a sermon on marriage because hopefully it will stick it to the libs, as they say. So pray for me, your preacher, because I've got a tough task this morning with many different kinds of people to talk to and to say something meaningful to But what I have to offer you this morning is simply what the Bible says. I'm no marriage expert. I'm no psychologist. I'm no sociologist. I'm a humble preacher, and my aim this morning is to take the Bible on its own terms at face value and seek to apply it to us as honestly and helpfully as possible. So let's get after it. Let me read our passage starting in verse 18 of Genesis 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man." Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Well, I think four headings will help us keep track of the movements in this passage. Here's the first. No one fit for the man. No one fit for the man. That's the first thing presented to us, and it's actually presented to us in two different ways. In God's statement of it in verse 18, and then in Adam's discovery of it through the exercise of naming the animals in verses 19 and 20. But it's God who says it first. It is not good that man should be alone. And that should strike us. That should surprise us if we've been reading carefully in Genesis thus far. Six times in Genesis 1, it said that God saw what he had made and it was good. And then the seventh one, after the creation of man, he said, it says, God saw everything he made and behold, it was very good. But now for the first time, it says, God says, it was not good. It is not good that the man should be alone. Why is it not good? The text doesn't exactly say. The most obvious reason would be it's not good because there's a lack of procreation without another. That creation mandate given in chapter 1 to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth would be impossible without a male and a female At least as God designed it, he certainly could have made a creature that self-reproduces, but he didn't. And so like like most of the rest of the creatures on this planet, man needs a counterpart to procreate. And that is simply part of God's plan, and each of us is here today as a product of that reality. But we might also surmise that God has made humans to be social creatures, not just sexual creatures, not just reproducing creatures. We are social creatures. It's not good for anyone to be alone. Hold off on verse 18, getting to marriage in your thinking, just for a bit. We'll get to that. But think more generally first. It's not good for anyone to be alone, whether married or not. The most introverted among us would still find long-term solitary confinement to be a form of torture. I don't know if you've seen this TV series on these days, Alone. Ten individuals are dropped alone in ten different wilderness settings. And one by one, they tap out when they can't take it anymore until there's one left who wins. A few of them tap out because they can't take the physical conditions, the weather, the cold. One or two will tap out because of an injury, an infection. But the ones that keep at it eventually find that the greatest challenge is not the brutal weather or the homesteading, it is the loneliness. It's rather painful to watch as their behavior gets weirder and weirder. And I stress this point 
that we shouldn't be so quick to run to marriage, so strict and limiting verse 18 to marriage because of single people. Single people should not think that the banner over their singleness is a divine not good. It may feel not good, but it isn't not good. I mean, after all, our Lord Jesus remained single during his days on earth. The Apostle Paul was not only single, but he wrote at length in 1 Corinthians 7 about how his singleness was advantageous to his ministry. We learn in the New Testament that there will be no marrying in heaven. And that one day, human earthly marriages will give way to a greater eternal reality that these earthly marriages have been pointing to all along. So, single friend who longs for marriage, I know this is a trial for you. No small one, I'm sure. But I also know that you are right now exactly where God has you. And he is good and wise and in control. And so you can trust him even in those hard circumstances. And you can hear this passage from Genesis 2 and not bristle under it. Instead, to thank God more generally that he did not leave Adam alone in the garden, but he has produced a humanity and you in it. And in general, we can all admit and acknowledge his plan for man and woman, husband and wife, is indeed good even if you're currently not among them, or perhaps never will be in this life. So back to the passage, because we're only halfway through one verse so far, so let's hurry up. The second half of verse 18, God says, I will make him a helper fit for him. Just like that phrase, not good, requires some delicate clarification, so does the word helper. The woman was created as the man's helper, which at times in church history has been misunderstood and misapplied by Christians. In English, the word helper signifies something like an underling, an assistant, a gopher. Back when our oldest Autumn was just four or five years old, we were involved in a home renovation project at the time, and she was an eager beaver. And so I would need someone who could go get that for me and, and hold this in place for me while I do this. And, and, and go, go, go get the Phillips, not the flathead. And she would know, and she liked it. And, and so I gave her a, a toy tool belt, and she would wear her overalls, and I would call her my helper. Fitting in English. But in the Bible, the word for helper, at least in the original Hebrew, it doesn't mean helper like that. Most often, it is applied to God. God is the helper. He is the helper of his people. Of the 19 times that that word is found in the Old Testament, 16 of them relate to God being the helper of his people. So what Adam lacks in this helper he doesn't lack a, a helper that he can boss around. 
A helper who will meet all of his selfish whims. No, he needs a helper, a support, a strength in his life. Not unlike God who is the strength and support of his people. Adam needs a helper that is fit. You see that word? Fit. And the word for fit is this compound Hebrew thing that literally means like opposite. She is to be his like opposite. He needs one like him. Yes, they're both fully human. Yes, equal in worth and value and dignity. But one not just like him. She is his counterpart, his like opposite. And God wants to teach Adam this. And so God walks Adam through this exercise of naming all the kinds of animals in verses 19 and 20. It's an expression of Adam's God-given dominion over the rest of creation. As God's vice regent on earth, he is categorizing and naming the animals, which up to this point only God has done. In Genesis 1, God did all the naming But made in God's image, now Adam names the animals. And God takes an interest to see Adam at work. He wanted to see what he'd call them. But the main point of this exercise of the animal parade and the naming is so that Adam comes to the same conclusion that God already has. The conclusion is there at the end of verse 20. For Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Adam realizes that he is alone even amidst this giant petting zoo. He's different. Pets are good. And even a neat expression of our subduing and having dominion on the earth. But we need more than talking parakeets and cuddling puppies We need to procreate and relate to others who are like us and not just like us. And that's what God graciously and miraculously provides. Secondly, woman created from the man. No one fit for the man, then woman created from the man. Verse 21 The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. Now, one of the first responses we might have to reading that is to wonder how much of it might be literal, how much of it might be figurative, is any of this symbolic And I don't know the answer to that. God, our God, sure could have literally pulled a rib out of Adam's side and created a a woman from that rib. After all, God spoke planets and galaxies into existence with his mere words back in chapter 1. Surely he can create a man-like counterpart out of part of man. I have no reason to doubt that. But... It is possible that the creation of Eve here is described in some symbol-laden ways. At the least, we can say, there is multi-layered significance to it. 
whether it's literal or symbolic, the account is meant to signify more than just what happened. There's a multi-layered message to the way God did this. One part of the message, one part of the significance is to show their sameness. Their sameness. She comes from the man. She's part of him. They're cut from the same cloth. They're of the same stuff. They're same in worth and dignity, importance and purpose. They're same in the image of God to reflect God's glory and thoughtfulness and leadership and worship. Remember from this, uh, remember from Genesis 1, where the image of God first came up. Verse 27, God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. It was for both of them. They both bear the image of God equally. Now in Moses' day, in the nation surrounding Israel, it was only powerful kings who were thought to bear the image of a god or gods. But in the Bible's reckoning, every single man and woman, rich or poor, in authority or under authority, they all equally bear the image of God. Also, in these alternative ancient Near East pagan creation accounts, none of them had a separate account for the creation of woman. But what do we have in our Bibles? In Genesis 2, we have the special creation of man for the first 17 verses. And in the rest of the chapter, we have the special creation of the woman. That's unique. This was a radical statement in Moses' day. As it was a radical thing in Jesus' day when he welcomed women to himself as freely as the men and taught the women as freely as people taught men in those days. The Bible has a a profound equality in our human relationships and worth. There's more to it than just their sameness, though. The money quote on this comes from the English Puritan Matthew Henry. Listen carefully. He said, The woman was made out of a rib, out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Indeed, well said. And I'll dare add to Matthew Henry's thorough analysis of the significance of how God created the woman. I think there's also sacrifice in the imagery. Adam underwent surgery for his wife to be. In fact, the Hebrew word is not rib like most of our translations have. It's side. It's probably more than rib. The woman was made from what was taken from man's side. Of course, God could have made her out of nothing. God could have made her out of the ground. God could have made her with 
one of Adam's hairs or fingernails or DNA that he just constructed on his own? No, but he made her from Adam's side, suggesting sacrifice right from the beginning. And all this while Adam was sleeping. He was sleeping. God often puts people to sleep in the Bible before he does what only he can do. Before he makes that all-important covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, he puts Abraham to sleep first. The disciples were sleeping in the garden that night when Jesus prayed and sweat as though drops of blood before his arrest. God sometimes removes the human element, the the human contribution to show his power and glory. So the creation of the woman from the man, like it's said here, it has multi-layered significance to it, as does what happens next. The end of verse 22. So he brought her to the man. Many have likened that to the tradition that we have in weddings to this day, where a father brings his daughter to the front and hands her off to the gentleman to whom she will be married. It's one of my favorite moments at weddings, and I often get to have a front row seat to see it take place. But in this first wedding, God serves as the father, as it were, and he brings her to the man. How beautiful. And how does the man respond? With celebration. Thirdly, a celebration of the woman. Verse 23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It's a song. It's a poem. Do you notice that in your Bibles? It's probably listed a little bit differently, indented and treated like poetry, because it is. And this is only the second time in the Bible that we have poetry. God giving us the first in chapter 1, verse 27. Adam responds to this new being he's never seen before. Not with technical language, not with nerdy introspection, nor silly giggles, but with a shout, a celebration, an exclamation. And no doubt he celebrates her beauty. He's never seen anything like this. This isn't like a zebra, a giraffe, a rhino, or a squirrel. This is woman. He celebrates their camaraderie, what they share. He says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So Adam recognizes what we've already taken time to talk about, that there's a sameness here that's unique among the rest of creation. He celebrates the companionship that God has provided in the woman. There is a great Protestant tradition that makes much of this point that the marriage described in Genesis 2 is one of companionship. Marriage is not just for procreation. Marriage is not just practicality. Two people 
better running a house together and raising kids and paying the bills. No, marriage is those things, but it is also companionship that should be pursued, increasingly so. And Adam also celebrates the complementarity of the relationship. I know that's a big word, but it's the right word. They complement each other. We've been seeing that in past weeks as God has put this pattern of two-ness all through his creation from the very beginning. Earth and sky, land and sea, moon and sun, light and darkness. These things go together, but they're distinct, they're different. And so is man and woman, the same yet different. That idea is expressed in what she's called woman. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. You can see it in those two English words, woman and man. You also see it in the two Hebrew words. She shall be called Isha, for she was taken out of Ish. Men and women are different. Not bad different, good different. Complementary. Neither is inferior to the other. They are equal in worth and dignity and value and divine image and purpose. But they are different. They are biologically different. And they're made to be different in other ways, which we don't have time to explore this morning. That would be its own book or a Saturday seminar for us around here. But they're different. Just, just take it from Adam's praise song of his wife where he celebrates their complementarity. He is Ish. She is Isha. That's God's purpose, and it's beautiful. And by the way, to state the obvious, to state what is simply assumed in the Bible, that means that men and women are the only two gender options available in the Bible. And gender and sex, which are distinguishable today, are not in the Bible. It's the same. We also see in the Bible that God designed for one man and one woman to be married until death do them part. Now, I know that is radically different than what the world says today. People even say what I just said would be heart, uh, hurtful and harmful. I don't know how to prove to you what the Bible says if you're one who strongly disagrees with it. I could try to point out that procreation only happens between a man and a woman. I could try to show you that ambiguous genitalia is extremely rare and shouldn't be the basis for a whole worldview change or sexual ethic. I could try to point to the complexity and absurdity of sports these days where male-female distinctions are disappearing. I could point to the head-spinning co complexity found in a culture where a transgender man, that is one who used to identify as a woman, now is identifying as a man, 
defends abortion rights because he still has a uterus and may need an abortion someday. If you said, what did you just say? I said, head-spinning complexity, right? And that's just a headline from the news yesterday. It's everywhere these days. And I could also suggest that this kind of thinking that's prevalent today in the world is actually brand new to world history as of just 50 years ago. I could point to those things, but I know they're not very persuasive to those who are deep in the weeds of another worldview. And so all I can say to you is that Christians are Bible people. By conviction, we are Bible people. We're looking to God and to the Bible for our primary identity. We're looking to God and the Bible for what defines what's good and right and what, what is human flourishing. And we don't think that it's freeing to abandon God's design no matter how much we get outnumbered. But we'd also say to you that in Jesus there is mercy and redemption and restoration and healing there is hope in him. We'll come back to that in a bit. But back to Adam. He celebrates his wife as woman and as wife. And he celebrates her as that before there is any childbearing, we should note. Ladies who have struggled with infertility, take careful note of this. Adam celebrates her as woman and wife before there's any childbearing. Yes, Eve will bear children, that comes later, but Adam doesn't wait for children to celebrate her as woman and wife. And so you are fully human. You are fully woman. And if you're married, you are fully wife apart from kids. What does all this mean for husbands? What does Adam's response teach us? Well, it teaches us, of course, to celebrate our wives, to celebrate them passionately and thoughtfully and creatively, sometimes theologically and continually. I don't know what that might look like for you. For me, years ago, it meant that I would write my wife occasional fifth-grade-level poetry. It's not good enough to share with anyone. It was good enough to move the needle of her love-o-meter just a bit for that day. It may be longer. I don't know. But what is it for you? How would you give yourself to creatively, passionately, thoughtfully, theologically, continually celebrate the wife that the Lord has given you. The Proverbs 31 woman, of her it said that her husband praises her in the gates. And may Desert Springs Church be made up of husbands who do that who are growing and celebrating their God-given wives passionately, thoughtfully, creatively, theologically, continually. And now lastly, 
the union of man and woman. It comes to the culmination with Moses' pastoral commentary for the reader. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is how marriage is supposed to go. This is how it's going to happen for later generations. Moses lays down the pattern, starting with this principle, what, what used to be called leaving and cleaving. Leaving one family, beginning a new family, clinging to that wife, that spouse. That is both instantaneous, the day of the wedding, and it's lifelong and progressive. That's why that handoff of the bride is so significant at the wedding because she's leaving one household to form another. To put it in the words of Ruth, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. That is leaving and cleaving and it happens the day of the wedding and even the night of the wedding. But it is also lifelong and progressive. Becoming one flesh is not just the marital bed, but it's also emotional. And in that sense, we continue to grow in our one fleshness over time in a marriage, at least we should. And those of you who have had a, a decently healthy marriage for a couple of decades now, you, you've seen it, haven't you? You've experienced it. You've, you can feel growing more one. It feels like you're one person more than you used to feel. Almost the way that you instinctively scratch an itch on your own body. The more time you spend getting to know and caring for a spouse, the more you instinctively scratch a proverbial itch in them before they express that they have it and ask you to scratch it. Now, none of us are batting a thousand in that department. None of us are as selfless as we should be. Not even in the best and longest of marriages. No, it's still there. But there is a growing oneness in a godly marriage that is sweet and beautiful. God's ways are not only right or moral. They are good. They are beautiful. They are full of blessing. They produce human flourishing. And so it's worth pursuing. If you're a young man of marriable age, what are you waiting for? Get you one of these. What are you waiting for? If you say, I don't know, I don't see any that catch my eye. Uh, come find an older gentleman. We'll help you out. We don't mind doing that. Ecclesiastes says two are better than one. I was married at the age of 21, and I'm sure some would think, oh, you probably wasted your 20s then. No, my 20s were great. Get married soon. If you are married, 
And it doesn't matter to whom. It doesn't matter if you wish you had a different wife or husband. You have the one that you have. There are no do-overs. The one you have is your God-given assignment, even if it is a tough assignment. And so if you're married, husband or wife, this one flesh union is already a reality, but it is also worth pursuing to see it become a greater reality. So it's worth your sacrifice. It's worth dying to self. It's worth growing in godliness. It's worth your time and effort. It's worth figuring out what you're doing wrong. It's worth reading a good book or two about godly marriages. And then 10 years later, reading two other good books on a godly marriage because we're forgetful people. It's worth talking to someone else who might be a little further down the road, maybe a little more mature than you, about struggles in your marriage when you have them. I can't tell you how often couples in our church seek out pastoral counseling only when their marriage is on the brink of ruin. It's like they showed up to the mechanic with the engine blown, the transmission dropped, and they say, fix it. And pastors don't fix engines or transmissions, but, but they can help a little bit when the check engine light is on to keep this analogy going. You need to get help when the check engine light is on before it gets worse. So I wonder if that's you today. You'd say, yeah, the check engine light of our marriage is on and we're hearing something funny coming from the right fender and I'm not sure what it is. Let us know how we can help. I mean, after all, what's at stake in all this? It's not just your own happiness or misery. It's not just the possibility of divorce if things continue to head south. What's at stake in all this is nothing less than the glory of God. Nothing less than that beautiful picture and illustration that marriage is to be for Christ and his church. Listen to Ephesians 5, a passage which quotes our passage. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that, that he might sanctify her and cleanse her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. And then he quotes our passage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. God has designed marriage to be a living illustration of Christ's love and sacrifice for his people. And vice versa, his sacrificial love for his people is the pattern. It's the model of a husband's love for his wife. God put that 
in creation intentionally from the beginning. It's not like this became an illustration later. It's not like the Apostle Paul was starting to write this section of Ephesians 5, thinking for a while, what kind of illustration could I come up with? Ah, how about marriage? That will show Christ's love for the church. No. Paul was simply noting what has already been the case. It's now only especially realized in Jesus, the Savior and Messiah. But even before Jesus came, back in Hosea in the Old Testament, God said, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and steadfast love. So marriage is a great union. And it points to a greater more important, longer-lasting union. So that's a good point at which to show you how this has all gone wrong. I mean, after all, something must have gone wrong. We know that from our own experience. Genesis 2 ends with, well, with roses, love, nakedness, and unashamed. And here we are today all fully clothed, thankfully. Yeah, next week we'll see the actual moment of departure in Genesis 3. But for this week, we can simply acknowledge that things have gone astray. We all have gone astray from God and his ways. In Hosea, it was worded like this, that Israel, God's people, had played the harlot and went whoring after other gods. They were hitched to God, the only God, but as they fooled around with idolatry, they cheated on their husband, God. And we've all done that to an extent. We've betrayed our maker, our God. And to quote Bob Dylan, now everything is broken. Everything is broken. The cracks in our marriages prove this. The discontented longing in our unmarried state proves this. Our persistent, stubborn selfishness, whether in marriage or out, proves this. Even our broken sexuality proves this. Whether of the heterosexual type or not, we all have a, a sexual broken experience. Something is wrong. Everything is broken. But that's why Jesus came. That's the mark of his love for us. We've sinned greatly. But he loved us and gave himself up for us. That's the language of Ephesians 5. He gave himself up for his people on that cross when he died in their place for their sins, taking on their guilt and giving them eternal life. Jesus sacrificed more than his side for his bride. He sacrificed it all. He sacrificed his life. He died for his bride. And so if you haven't yet come to put your hope in that, today 
would be a great time to do that. Don't delay. Jesus sets his love upon us, redeems us with his work upon that bloody cross and in that empty tomb. He offers eternal life and forgiveness to all who would simply believe and receive and call out to him for it. And then he purifies us. Not only purifies our account, but begins to purify our lives, our actions, our attitudes, our outlooks. He begins to reshape our ethic, our our way of looking at things. And so, brothers and sisters, this is the hope for all of our failures. Whether married or not, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Here is the basis for our forgiveness of others, whether married or not, but especially in that closest and most intimate of relationships like marriage. We forgive because we've been forgiven. We love because we've been loved. And here is the hope that awaits the redeemed, whether you're married in this life or never. One day there is coming a consummate wedding and marriage. We referred to it in our Lord's Supper service just a few days ago. It's at the end of Revelation. There is a marriage supper of the Lamb and the bride coming in a new heaven and a new earth. John, the writer of Revelation, saw the holy city the new heaven and new earth, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's what awaits us. And until that day, let's give our all to wherever the Lord has us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for being our Savior, for loving us so much. May we be the bride you've called us to be in purity and devotion and honor to you. And may our marriages reflect that more and more in this church for a watching world who needs this Savior desperately. And Lord, we thank you for the hope of what's coming one day when Jesus shall return. And all these things that were pointing the way to the greatest thing are eclipsed by this greatest thing, the marriage of the Lamb with his bride. We look forward to that day, Lord, and we pray in Jesus' saving name. Amen.